uh, Lighthouse. It is a honor to worship with you. One of the things that hit me when I was just sitting right there is that, you know, as pastors, we don't really get a chance to get out of our church much on a Sunday morning. We're just kind of in a little bubble well, because it's our job. Uh, we, we need to be there, um, you know, so you don't really get that exposure of really, you, you kind of get insular and kind of, you forget that there's other like-minded churches out there. Um, so just being here this morning is a joy because singing with you guys, it's like, oh, we're not the only ones. Um, wow. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, you guys have already been a blessing to us this morning. Um, so thank you. Um, on behalf of uh, LCBC, uh, Laguna Chinese Baptist Church, I bring you my greetings. Um, and thanks to you because uh, I know that we've had a number of our college students uh, come through your church and they've been really blessed, uh, and even some of them have stayed. It's our loss, but your gain. I know that, so uh, we're very thankful uh, that they're part of your church. And, uh, we, and thank you even for, I don't know, I, I met a couple of you guys who came out with Pastor Mark in October 2019. He came and you shared him with us. He came and spoke on a Sunday morning um, to talk about biblical counseling at our church, so we were, we were really blessed by that, too. So... Um, also, um, I know. I think I even recognized a couple of you guys from uh, the last couple months with the North Creek uh, training. Um, so we've got a big group that's out there. So if in a couple weeks, um, I would love to meet you today. So that way, in a couple weeks, I would recognize you in uh, out there at, at uh, Walnut Creek. So um, yeah, we're very thankful for that. Um, I realize that I have a challenging uh, task ahead of me in some ways to just kind of parachute in on your series of Sundays that you guys have. Um, and I'm very thankful that Mark has given me the chance to bring the word to you this morning. Uh, but it may be as a way of me just briefly sharing a little bit about myself so that way I'm a little bit more familiar to you. I've had the honor of serving at Laguna uh, for three and a half years now. I am the youth pastor there. I never really expected to get into youth ministry. When I was in seminary, but God has a sense of humor and a strange way of working things, and I am very, very thankful for what I'm doing. Um, it is a joy and an honor. And um, it doesn't feel like three and a half years because of the COVID time period. We were online for about a year. Um, thankfully for the last year, we've been mostly normal uh, back in person, and it feels more normal, and that is God's grace. Uh, it was a challenge, but we're grateful that we're getting back on track. Uh, with that, uh, my amazing wife, Hannah, is here this morning as well. We've been married for almost five years. Yes, our anniversary is in a couple weeks, as Pastor Mark mentioned. Um, we're going to be heading up to Napa after this to just get a little getaway. I'm very thankful my parents can watch our two-and-a-half-year-old uh, Zion. I'm assuming, hold on, that this is working. There we go. There's a picture of him for you. Uh, he's not here with us. He, uh, grandparents are, are watching him. Um, but he is our, our joy and uh, our sunshine. He brings so, much, so many smiles to us. Um, and uh, as you can see, I'm trying to train him up right with a love for Batman and a love for soccer. Um, those are two big things. So I'm nerdy and I, and I love uh, sports. So... Um, I'm not originally from Cali. Uh, I would consider myself mostly from the Midwest. My family moved around a lot because my dad was in the Army. However, he retired from that. We settled in Lafayette, Indiana uh, when I was 11. 
Uh, Lafayette is the home of Purdue University. Some of you may be familiar, which that's where I eventually did my undergraduate studies uh, and eventually my seminary studies at Faith Church. Um, and those years, I, I just bring that up just saying that those years were very formative years for me, especially in my faith um, and my personal walk with the Lord. Um, especially in college, uh, that was when really my faith took off. Um, and I think perhaps that's one of the reasons Originally, I had wondered, is God calling me to collegiate ministry um, or focusing with young adults? But then when God started calling me to youth ministry, I realized I, I, had, I wish that somebody had pushed me a little bit more when I was in high school, uh, really pushed me in my faith. So that, that's what drives me with uh, my ministry to the, to the teens at Laguna. Um, and it's also, while we were in Lafayette, that's where I met Hannah. Uh, who had moved out to Purdue from Orange County to pursue her graduate studies. So she is much more of a Cali person than me. And some of you guys might be from there originally. Uh, but we eventually got married, and we are thankful to be uh, serving at Laguna. And uh, it's just God has an amazing way of bringing us uh, together today. So I'm very thankful for that. I would ask that you guys would uh, bow your heads with me as I pray and ask the Lord for his strength uh, for this morning to uh, open up his word with you. Oh, Father God, we come before you, and I am, I am the first to admit, Lord, that I am very woefully inadequate for this task ahead to uh, preach your word and to do it with a group of brothers and sisters who I am not completely familiar with, and Lord, but you know exactly where they are, you know who they are, and you know their hearts. And so, Lord, I pray by your spirit that you would hide me behind the cross, that you would hide me behind yourself, and that I would just be simply a spokesperson for you, and that we would see wonderful treasures and riches from your word together, and that's what would impact us this morning, that we would grow together um, in our faith. And we pray these things in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I was discussing with Pastor Mark what would be a fitting passage to study in today's sermon, he and the other elders here picked Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. So if you have a Bible or an app somewhere close by, I invite you to open to the book of Ephesians. And as we study this passage today, I want to draw our attention to what it has to say on the topic of Christian maturity. Christian maturity. And more specifically, what is the source of Christian maturity? I want you to think about that. Where does maturity in the Christian life come from? Whether it's for you personally or for someone you know. As you can see from the picture behind me that, you know, uh, being a young father, it makes you think a lot about maturity and your children, and it makes you realize that there is an expectation that as a child grows, or as you grow, that there is a level of maturity that increases, right? There's a level of awareness of what's going on. There's a level of, you would hope that behavior would change. And one of the things that I think I didn't quite realize is that when you're a, a young parent, you will construct sentences in your mind that you usually don't have to say to adults. Uh, for example, uh, you know what, honey, please don't throw your food everywhere. 
don't throw your food on the ground for the umpteenth time. It doesn't really blend well with the carpet. Um, you know what, buddy? You don't need to grab every single item that's on the shelves in the grocery store. You can put that back. <laughs> you don't need to grab everything. Um, and hey, man, you know, it's probably not the best idea to hold the sippy cup with just your teeth. <laughs> I got some laughs there. I'm sure that you guys have seen that. that my, our son does that. Um, there is an expectation that as people get older, you don't have to say those things. There's an expectation that there's some behavior that's in kids and children that is cute. We'll pass it off as it's, it's out of ignorance and it's out of, they're just being cute. But if we had to say that with adults, that's not so cute. That's not quite so endearing. There's, a, there's an idea that there's a, an increase in maturity and a growing up, so to speak. And I, my question is, does that apply to the Christian life? Is there a sense of we should be growing in maturity and, and a growing knowledge and a change in behavior, a change of heart? And I would argue, yes, the Bible does say that. But the question is, where does that come from? What is the key to Christian maturity for us as believers? And that's where I invite us to look at today's passage. We're jumping into the middle of Ephesians, and this is the end of the first half of the letter. Some of you guys might be familiar with it. This passage, in some ways, is a rising crescendo to the end of an intro, Paul's intro uh, and an opening prayer to the believers in Ephesus. And I invite you to look at verse 14 with me through 21. Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Again, we're talking about the source of Christian maturity. And what is its source? According to Paul in this passage, I'm going to argue that he's saying it comes from God opening our eyes to see how much he loves us. Lock on to that statement. Christian maturity comes from God opening our eyes to see how much he truly loves us. Let's unpack this passage because I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to see it here in these verses. Well, the first thing is we need to understand the context because when you read the first words, it says, for this reason. What reason? What are you getting at, Paul? What's the reason that's making you pray? And this is coming from his extended prayer starting in chapter 1. So we have to work our way backwards. When you see something that's referring to something before, work your way backwards a few verses. And as you work your way backwards, you start to then find at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul actually says the same words, for this reason. And the reason why is because Paul gets a little sidetracked. I don't know if you've noticed that when you read in the epistles. Sometimes he goes on little tangents. 
Um, and it's similar to what we do, where you start to make a point to someone, you're trying to make an argument, and then you get on the little, side, you know, little rabbit trail, and then you come back and say, okay, as, as I was saying, here's my point. Paul's doing the same thing. But what is Paul talking about before chapter 3? Well, let's work our way backwards a little bit for this reason. When you look at the beginning of chapter 3, you see this amazing statement. Sorry, beginning of chapter 1. You see this glorious statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I encourage you, let that sink in just for a moment. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we have that in Jesus Christ. Oftentimes when we think of blessing, we think of physical needs. And those things are needed, those things are true. But Paul wants to open our eyes to see bigger needs. Our biggest needs have been met in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to list all the ways we have been blessed in Christ in those verses, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Then he shares how he prays that God would open the eyes of the Ephesian church to see those blessings, and that's in the second half of chapter 1. Then he goes right into recounting how they were spiritually dead in their sins, and now they're alive in Jesus Christ, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Perhaps you're familiar with those verses. And then he adds on the amazing fact that God brought them as Gentiles together with the Jews to be the church. And that's in the second half of chapter 2. Calls them a dwelling place for God, as he puts it. And this is a major statement because if you think about the Old Testament, God was dwelling with a specific people group. Israel still had a responsibility to reach the nations, but it was a more of a come and see sort of thing. God has flipped the script and now it is his dwelling place is not just with Israel, it is with, this, with people from all nations. And instead of a come and see, now it's a go and tell. So he's saying that is an amazing thing to be called the dwelling place of God, his temple. To be joined with the people of Israel. And then, as I noted before, he gets to the point where it seems like he's going to end his prayer. And that's the beginning of chapter 3. But then he gets sidetracked to share how he's honored to suffer for the sharing of the gospel and does not want them to be discouraged for him. Which then leads to today's passage where he gets back on track and says, for this reason. In other words, he's saying, because of all the blessings you have in Jesus Christ, because of all the things that I've just been sharing with you about how blessed you are being in Jesus Christ, now I bow my knees to pray for you. That's why I pray for you. But then he says, he explains who he's praying to. And it's not just to anyone, he's praying to God. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. I think that's very specific. He didn't have to say that. He could have just said, I bow my knees before God. But no, he's saying, before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's speaking of one of the persons of the Trinity, God the Father. We believe that God has revealed himself to be three persons in one. Three persons, but one essence. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And when he says, from every family in heaven on our, excuse me, from every family in heaven and on earth is named, he's not talking about all our families being named after God. 
so to speak. And he's not talking about how some people like to say, oh, we're just all God's children. Let's just all sing kumbaya and hold hands together. That's not what he's talking about. The Greek word used here for family carries the idea of lineage and generations all having one ancestor. So God is talking about how God is the source of all life. He is the creator. He is sovereign. He is the origin of all people. And Paul takes confidence in this, that because God is ruling over all, he can pray this prayer. Now, we know why he's praying. He's praying because he is thankful for all the blessings that the Ephesian believers have in Christ. But what does Paul pray for? And we see this in verses 16 through 19. This is where we get to the meat of this passage. What is Paul asking God to do for these saints, for the Ephesian church? There's two things. Look at the passage. He says, one, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that's one. That's one thing, that God would grant strength in your inner being. And two, the second one, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Let's look at those one at a time. First off, what does it mean to be strengthened with power in your inner being? Paul is talking about the power and ability to do something. And what does he pray that they would be able to do? Well, we'll get to that in a second, but let's just pause and look at this. Notice how Paul is talking about this power. This power to do something comes from God alone. It's not coming from them. And whatever Paul hopes they will have the power to do, it involves their inner being. That's very specific. He's not talking about physical strength. He's not talking about mental strength or intelligence. He is targeting the heart. He's targeting our souls. Proverbs 4.23 warns us to guard our hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Everything that we do springs forth from inside us, from our hearts. The reason we do what we do as humans is not ultimately because you were born a certain way or you were raised a certain way. At the end of the day, we do what we do because our hearts desire fulfillment. And our inner being that Paul speaks of is our inner command center, so to speak. And he's making the point that we need God to give us strength in our hearts, in our souls, the inner man, the inner woman, because without that, we are nothing. I am, I've kind of led on a little bit, and Pastor Mark mentioned that I studied computer graphics technology, so I am a bit nerdy. And perhaps a helpful analogy that I think of is the difference between a desktop computer and a laptop. Bear with me here, okay? When I think of power, I think a lot of times when we think of power and sustainability, we think of ourselves as spiritual laptops. We think of the fact that, you know, hey, if I have a good laptop, I can just plug myself in for a little bit, charge up my battery, just plug in and get some Jesus juice, and I'll be good to go for the day, or I'll be good to go for the week. But think about the difference between a laptop and a desktop. If you unplug a desktop computer, boom, it's gone. Power, at least older desktop computers. I don't know if there are currently ones out there that don't do this, but... Um, most desktop laptop, you know, desktop computers, if you unplug it from the wall, you're going to have no power. You can touch the keyboard all you want, and you're not going to get anywhere. 
And my question is, did God design us to act more like spiritual laptops or spiritual desktops? God made us to be spiritual desktops where you are plugged into him all the time. And in fact, we know from John 15 that Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. The only reason that you and I can do anything is because of God empowering us, God giving us the strength that we need day in and day out. And that's the type of power that Paul is referring to here. He's praying that the Ephesian believers would see and experience this power of God where it only comes from him. It does not come from themselves. They are not spiritual laptops. They're spiritual desktops where they need to be plugged in constantly and have that power flowing through them. So that's the first thing he's praying for, that they would experience this power in their inner being, in their hearts. But the second thing he prays for is for Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith. Now at first glance, you might be a little confused because you might be thinking, wait a second, as a Christian, I thought Jesus is already in my heart. Why, Paul, are you praying that Christ would be there if he already is there? Well, there is a sense in which that is true. There is a sense in which the Spirit of Christ dwells in every believer. But there is also a sense in which Jesus can have more or less residence in your heart. This is where another analogy might be helpful. I like to think of the difference between an Airbnb or a rental house versus a house that is owned. Some of you guys perhaps even have rented out spaces or you have your house listed on Airbnb or a second house or perhaps you have done rental stuff. And I would imagine that for any of you, if you, had list, if you listed a house on Airbnb, and let's say that you rented it to someone for over the weekend, they wanted to have a weekend getaway, and I would imagine that if you came back to check on your Airbnb a week later and you found that the wall that was between your kitchen and the dining room was knocked down to give more of an open concept, somebody had changed the paint, somebody had decided to move all the decorations, somebody had put up new pictures on the wall, that you would not be a happy camper. I would imagine that you would be a little upset about that because that's not the agreement. The renter does not have the right to change everything. They're just there to stay, and that's it. But let's imagine that you sold your house, and this person came in and decided to do all this demo and reno and change everything. That would be okay. Because you would say, no, they own it now. They can do with it however they want. The house is closed. It's all good. Now let me ask you guys this. Do we treat our hearts more like Airbnbs and rentals or more like a house that's owned by Jesus Christ? I have to confess, I think all too often I treat my heart more like a rental with Jesus and I say, Jesus, I need you. Thank you for saving me. Come on in. Stay in my home. Stay there. I really need you. But you can make some changes. Just don't change too much. You know, maybe just don't, don't, you can change the paint color a little bit, but just, you know, don't move everything around and don't reconstruct everything and don't do a big renovation. Don't change my lifestyle too much. You know, don't change my priorities too much, you know, but I, I still want to worship you and I still want to prioritize you. We would say that that's not really taking up residence and that's not how God designed us to live. God designed us where Jesus comes in and he owns you. 
He owns your life. He owns your heart. And because he's the owner, he has every right to flip everything, to renovate us from the inside out. That's what Paul is getting at here. That Christ would take up more residence, more ownership within us to change our hearts, to change our affections, to change our emotions, to change our thinking, our attitudes, to renovate us from the inside out. So, let's review. What is Paul praying for? That God would give the Ephesian believers strength in their hearts and for Jesus to take up more residence day in and day out in their hearts. But to what end? Why is he praying this? Why, what is the purpose of Jesus doing this in them? We'll look at verse 18. It says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In short, Paul is praying for God to give the Ephesian believers the strength and ability in their hearts to grasp how much God loves them. And how has God loved them? And this is where the rest of chapters 1 through 3 come into play. Paul has been praising God right from the beginning of this book, sharing how much God loves them. And in summary, here are some of the ways God has loved us as believers and those who are in this church in Ephesus. Paul starts with talking about how we are chosen in Christ. And he's, not, he's chosen us to forgive us, to adopt us as sons and daughters, to purify us and make us holy like Jesus, to give us an eternal inheritance and to seal us with the Holy Spirit. He covers all of those in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, the first half there. But not only that, another way he's loved us is that he works in us. The same power that worked in Jesus Christ to raise him from the dead works in us. That's what he says in the second half of chapter 1. That is an amazing, amazing statement, a mind-blowing truth. And not only that, he says in the first half of chapter 2, he brings us from spiritual death to life in Christ. And then we know from the second half of chapter 2, he has brought us near to himself and those who he saved in the old covenant. He has broken down the wall of hostility between us Gentiles and Jews to make us all a dwelling place for God, the church. And then he touches on in the beginning of chapter 3, he has revealed to us his plan of redemption through Christ for our sake and others that God will bring in through our preaching of the gospel. And we could go on and on and on exploring the riches of God's love. But notice how Paul describes it. He's saying that God's love is so wide that you can never get your head around it. So long that you can never surpass it. So deep that you will never reach the bottom of it. And so high that you'll never get over it. He basically just sums it up, it surpasses knowledge. Which can be a little confusing because you think, wait a minute, so Paul, you want them to know this love, but how can you if it surpasses knowledge? Well, because he's not talking about the realm of just intellectual knowledge. He's talking about experiential knowledge. There's a big difference between knowing something in your head versus knowing it in your heart, that you've experienced it. 
And But what does grasping how much God loves us lead to? And this is the crux of the matter. Look at the end of verse 19. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And this is where we get the title for today's message. He isn't talking in some mystical sense of where God is some force or just energy that's supposed to kind of sit inside you or flow through you. And he's not talking about how somehow we're supposed to attain some sort of godhood or some sort of deity level or status, as some religions say. When Paul says being filled with all the fullness of God, that's Paul's speech for growing and maturing in Christ. Later on in chapter 4, he speaks to how we as Christians are to grow in maturity, and he uses very similar language. He says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we're not just pulling this out of thin air. This seems like we're triangulating it here, that this is Paul's way of saying growing and having God dwell in you and work in you, and be more, you make him making, him making you more like him day in and day out. You might be thinking, okay, that's great. But what's the significance of that? Well, I think we start to see it when we flip Paul's logic the other way around. Let me ask you this question. Do you want to be a mature Christian? Do you want to grow to be more like Christ? Here's the answer. Pray that God would open your eyes to see how much he really loves you. That's Paul's logic here. That's where the Christian life starts. And many times I think, I think we know this deep down, that many of us, when we started as Christians, we're on fire for Christ. We're so in love with him. We're so thankful for what he's done. But then we get so caught up in the do's and don'ts of the Christian life, and those things are important and they are necessary because that's where chapters 4, 5, and 6 of this book come into play. Because Paul harps on being in, united with each other, having good communication, how to have a godly marriage. He talks about sexual purity. He talks about putting away, putting off your evil deeds and putting on right good deeds instead. He talks about putting on the armor of God. But before he gets to any of those commands, he talks about God's love. And he says, I pray that you would get how much God loves you because when you get that, you're going to start to grow. You're going to start to have Christ dwelling in you more and working in you and filling you with all the fullness of Christ. Seeing and savoring God and his love leads to maturity in the Christian life. And I think we know this deep down that even in the realm of us raising kids that this, this applies. There's a story when I was learning more about this passage from a book that a theologian was expounding and opening up my eyes to see the significance of this passage. He shares a story of, of foster parents. with uh, They live out on the East Coast. And he, he, talk, he says this, um, these foster parents, the agency with whom they were connected, asked these parents to take two twin 18-month-old boys. The couple hesitated at first but agreed to accept them when the agency assured them that the boys would be with them just for only about six weeks. The couple took them in the first night. And the boys were put to bed. 
and not a peep came from their bedrooms. Bedroom, excuse me. Curious, the husband crept into their room and a half hour later, and he found both boys wide awake, their pillows wet with tears, but neither was making a sound. It transpired that they had been beaten for crying in several of the homes in which they had been placed before coming to this couple. This was their ninth home. Testing had suggested that the, that the twins were irremediably damaged emotionally and intellectually. And as it happened, these two twins stayed with this couple for close to two years. And by the time they were adopted, they were judged within the normal range of intellectual and emotional capacity. Completely normal. Had gone from being considered irreparable, emotionally and intellectually, to being considered normal. How? Was it something special about the couple? No. They had just loved them. They were in a loving home for two years. And they matured. They grew. They changed. I think we know that deep down, that that is the way that we grow as well. When we experience love, when we experience God's love, that's how we grow and mature as Christians. That is the crux of us growing as Christians. But we can't forget the last part of this section because this is where Paul talks about why he can pray this audacious prayer. In verses 20 through 21, he talks about why can he pray this? How can he pray this? It's because God's power is not limited. Think about verse 20 where he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Now when you look at this statement in the original Greek, it is just one superlative just piled on to another. I love how commentator Andrew Lincoln puts it where he says, this passage basically says, God is able to do what believers ask in prayer. No, on top of that, he says that he's able to do what they may fail to ask, but what they can think. Not only that, he's able to do all they ask or think. No, it doesn't stop there. He's able to do above all they ask or think. Doesn't stop there. He's able to do abundantly above all they ask or think. No, he's able to do more abundantly above all they ask or think. No, he's able to do infinitely more abundantly above all they ask or think. And what's more, says the writer, this expressible power is at work within you and me. That is an amazing statement. If we have any reason to doubt God's ability, he is not limited. This statement is just saying he is able to do far more abundantly than all we could even ask or imagine. And another reason why Paul can pray this prayer is because God will be glorified. He speaks to that in verse 21, where he says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul is not praying because he deserves something back from God in return for his service. That's not why he thinks he can pray. Maybe you think, you know, some of us could easily think, well, he's just been a good Christian and perhaps he thinks, okay, I feel like I can come to God and pray this prayer. No, that would, just to, that would just forget everything that he's been saying leading up to this point. Paul has been talking about how unworthy we are as sinners. He, un, he highlights how unworthy we are of God's love. But he has the audacity to pray this prayer because he knows that God will be glorified. That God does everything for his honor, for his glory, and for our 
joy. Apart from God, we are spiritual dead rebels running from God and deserving eternal condemnation. We have no reason to come to God's throne and ask for anything. But thanks be to God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of what he's done to save his bride. And because it's all about that, God is, says, I will be magnified. I will be glorified. So he is willing to honor this request if we're doing it for his honor, for his glory. And Paul prays this prayer so that God will be magnified, that God will be glorified. And as the Ephesian believers, God, Paul's praying that as they mature and grow in Christ, they're going to display Christ in his glory, not their own. This isn't about them. It's about God. So in summary... In today's passage, we see Paul come to this resounding crescendo of his extended prayer for the Ephesian believers. And he prays that God would grant them strength in their inner being and for Christ to take up residence more and more in their hearts so they would grasp how much God loves them, which would lead them to growing and maturing in Christ. If we flip it around, the point of the Christian life is growing and maturing, and the key to that is seeing and savoring how much God loves you. And the only way you're going to see that is by God giving you the power in your hearts to see that and for Christ to just take up more and more residence in your heart. Now, what about application? I like to always end, end any sermon or teaching with just clear, pointed application. I don't know about you, I'm just very, I just need down-to-earth, simple how do I apply this? Well, first, let me ask you this, brothers and sisters. Do you pray like this for yourself? Is this the type of prayer that you pray for yourself? And this is something I only noticed recently when I heard a theologian preach on this passage, that Paul prays big, audacious prayers. Paul does not hold back. He prays for the biggest things to happen because he believes in a big God. And I think that oftentimes we perhaps shrink down our prayer requests a little bit. And that's not to say that the things we normally pray for are wrong. We should be praying for the daily needs that we have. I mean, just thinking about the Lord's Prayer. God, give us the bread we need. We can pray for those things. We should. And we should pray for things. But I, too often, I think I, get, I pigeonhole myself into praying that my day would go well or that God would help me get through a stressful project or that God would alleviate some pain or problem that I have that day. And again, that's not wrong to pray that, but am I limiting myself to that? And based on what Paul is saying here, one of the biggest and most important things I need to be praying for myself is that God would open my heart to see how much he loves me. I need to be praying for that power to see and savor his compassion, his grace, his mercy in the gospel for me. And that it's not meant to lead me to self-esteem or to lead me to feeling good about myself. No, it's leading me to become more like Christ. And God's love shines all the more brighter as you and I come to see how desperate and needy we are. And I fear that as Christians, we try to be strong in our own strength. We try to hide our weakness. We try to hide our neediness. We try to act like we kind of have it all together. At least we don't try to act like we're the best Christians. At least we try to say we're competent Christians. You were never meant to live that way. 
We were always meant to be relying on God's power every moment, every day. And it's very fitting to remember the words of Christ in John 15, 5, when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We must pray for God's strength to change us and mature us to see his love more clearly. For that changes everything in our lives. Another question for application. Do you pray like this for other people? That's convicting for me. Do I pray like this for the people I know? Do I pray that they would have strength to know the love of God for them? Notice what Paul said in verse 18. He says, I pray that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. He's not just praying this for a certain group of people that lived in Ephesus. He's praying this for everyone. He's praying this for all believers, for all time. And don't misunderstand me. It is not wrong for us to pray for someone when someone says, hey, can you pray for my project today? Or can you pray for my schoolwork? Or can you pray for this ailment that I might have? But don't pigeonhole ourselves just to that level. Pray deep, big, audacious prayers for each other. Pray that God would be opening our, all of our hearts and giving us the power and strength to comprehend with all the saints the length, height, breadth, and depth of God's love. Pray for your brothers and sisters that that would lead to them maturing in Christ and growing in Christ and they would look different day in and day out. And that's the third point of application. Pray that God would open our eyes to see him how much he truly loves us. Pray this for yourself. Pray this for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray this for your family. Pray for this for non-believers. Pray for this for people who have yet to hear the gospel and have their hearts changed and brought to the throne of grace. Pray big, audacious prayers that, and pray boldly that we would go and proclaim the immeasurable love of God to the lost. And that we would pray that because he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And this is the key to growing as Christians. This is where we must start. And perhaps another point of application I'd add on here, the last one, is reflect on God's love in Scripture and prayer. I don't know about you, but if you're like me, I struggle at times to get into personal time with God. And yes, that is, that might seem ironic for a pastor to admit that, but that is very true. And perhaps it's a little deceiving because we spend time in the Bible, but we don't think of it for ourselves. We just think of regurgitating it for other people. I struggle and I need to be in the Word constantly and praying. And, and when you're struggling to get into the Word, start with God's love. That's a great place to start. Have a tool belt full of great passages and verses that you can just go to, memorize, and just come back to day in and day out when you're struggling to grow. And that's going to help you take small steps of growth. Psalm 23, Psalm 103, the book of Ephesians, and I know me saying the book of Ephesians might seem a little daunting, but even when I was preached this sermon originally earlier this year, we went through the book of Ephesians, and one of the things that I unexpectedly found very helpful was just even reading and listening to audio version of this book of Ephesians just over and over and over. And it's very deep, but you'll notice that as you just, just slowly, it's just like a drip in a bucket, you're just slowly getting it day in, day out, just slowly but surely, you start to notice more and more gems and just so rich theology in this book. 
And you just start to see more and more gems of how God has loved you and me. And pray. Pray hard. Pray that God would open your eyes to just see how much he loves you. And for many of us, I don't know all of you, but if, especially for those who are suffering, that is such a test. And in many ways, that is the crux of what makes, hard, of, makes suffering so hard is because it's harder to see God's love in those moments. And that's when we have to pray even harder that God would open our eyes to see his immeasurable love, even when it's hard to see, even when it seems really distant. I want to end today by sharing the words to an old hymn by Friedrich Lehmann. It's written in 1917. It's called The Love of God. Perhaps some of you are familiar with it. It goes like this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. When years of time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints' and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the sky of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to bow your heads with me, and, and I want as I close in prayer for this sermon, I want to model my prayer, my closing prayer off of this passage for you as a congregation and for all saints out there who are worshiping this morning. So let's bow our, bow our knees and bow our heads, Lord. God, we come before you for the reason of all the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ because of how you have worked in us immeasurably in ways that we could never ask or imagine because you are the God and Father of this universe and you are the creator of all things and because of you and your greatness, we bow our knees before you and I bow my knees and pray for this group of people here, this congregation. And I pray that you would, according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant them to be strengthened with power through your spirit in their inner beings, in their hearts, inside and that Christ may dwell in them more and more each day. And that they would be rooted and grounded in your love. And that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, not just this congregation, but every, every believer out there, every church, that they would comprehend with all the saints what is the length and height and breadth and depth and to know the love of your son, Jesus Christ, that surpasses knowledge so that they may be filled with all the fullness of you, that they may grow and mature in you. And we pray this because you are able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. We do not pray on our, because of anything we've done. We pray because of your power, and we pray because of the power you're working in us, and we pray this so that you would be honored and glorified in the church and in your Son, Jesus Christ, for all generations, forever and ever. Amen.